You're listening to Roots. Everyone has a story. Hosted by my dad, Mike Scazzeri. In this first of its kind podcast, I will be talking to everyday family researchers and dive into their own family history to discuss their own incredible stories and research techniques. To learn more about the show, please visit www.rootseveryonehasastory.com. And if you have questions, comments, or feedback, please email me at rootseveryonehasastory at gmail.com. You can also follow the show at Roots Everyone Has a Story on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Roots Everyone Has a Story. I'm your host, Mike Scazzari. Today's conversation is with Joanne Dembinski. Joanne is a researcher who spent over 10 years trying to get her late uncle honored with a Purple Heart. He was killed in World War II, and a lot of the circumstances around his death were a complete mystery to the family. So Joanne and some cousins made it their mission to not only put their tree together, but also to see through to the fact that their uncle would be honored with this Purple Heart. It's a very emotional story, and it really is one that speaks to the fact that there's a million reasons why we all get started in in family research. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Joanne. And as always, I thank you for your support and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to meet you, how are you doing today? I am great, thanks. So, so tell me, I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording, but tell me, you know, my favorite question for everybody is how did you get started researching your family? Well, I have a very large family on my mom's side. There were 10 kids. Okay. And four of them served in World War II, and one just died in Germany. Okay. Um, Questions were never answered, like, what happened? We don't know. We don't know. And the uncle that died, my Uncle Tony, was my mom's favorite for a lot of reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to know. Right. So one of my other cousins and I, because there were 14 of us, stair steps, and then one great big last push, and there were five or six kids born all the same year. Wow. And then one more for good luck, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) But um, So one of my other cousins and I kind of partnered. We were looking for our grandfather, but also I just felt my mission was to find my uncle and what happened. And I had no experience with the military or I didn't even know that he was Army, Navy. I had no clue. So. One week, many years ago, my cousin and I both committed to, we were going to spend this week researching. Okay. Um, and we were getting nowhere. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything out there that I was looking for mm-hmm. on World War II. Okay. Um, so I thought about looking up his unit number. 
And, you know, the old AOL from almost 25 years ago, it was like hit or miss right. kind of thing. Right. Totally and there was experience. nothing. But there was a unit. He was 634th. There was a 635th. So I jumped in there, found this lovely old gentleman. He was 80, who said to me, what you need to do is write for the individual death file. Okay. I mean, by this time, I was years into my search. And I guess it would have been late. So I wrote for it. Mm -hmm. In 30 days, it came. And I remember I was at a cousin's daughter's wedding, ran home because there was a break for pictures, and then went right back and didn't have the time to open it. Okay. The other cousins were there, so I said, something, you know, came in the mail. And I came home and I read it, and I always felt like there was a plethora of information there. And I wondered what happened to these documents. And unfortunately, when my grandmother died, um, the sisters, four, let the brothers handle everything. So... I have no idea if those documents were there or not, but I started researching and there was so much information. Like my uncle was evacuated to a field hospital in Belgium and he died there, okay. but still didn't know why. Okay. Um, I know that he was killed the last day of the of the Battle of Aachen, Germany. Mm -hmm. And I've made friends with a gentleman over there who just wrote a book about Aachen, the battle. Mm -hmm. the, um, and in the documents, I found out that he had been buried in Henri Chapelle Cemetery in Belgium and the grave number. Um, no picture, but found a letter from Congress saying that, and I believe it was 1947, mm -hmm. that if the family wanted, he could be repatriated home. Okay. And my grandfather wanted that. Okay. So it's kind of funny how you know that happened. But you don't know the how, what, where, when, and why. Right. So just lately, I started researching um, the repatriation. And the name of the first ship, the James V. Connolly, really stuck out to me. And I'm like, I know that name. I know that name. And my cousin had sent me information about the Brooklyn Naval Yard, which is where the James V. Connolly came into. And um, my uncle was on that ship. Wow, okay. And I have the newspaper clipping that shows there were 6,000 men that came home on that ship that day. And there was a ceremony in Central Park, and I can only believe... Um, it was for an unknown soldier. Mm -hmm. 
my grandfather was notified that he was back in the country and that they would be transporting him to the local funeral home. And I also found out from my friends in Connecticut, although my mother had always talked about it, there was another young man in this town that came home. Mm -hmm. His name was Michael Ronza. And the families or the funeral director, I don't know which, um, decided that they would do a double funeral. So the wake was held in the homes. Mm -hmm. The priest went to each home, did a blessing, Mm -hmm. and then they were transported to church. And I remember my mom telling me that Families entered the church. One went to one side, one went to the other side. Um, the mass was said, and then they went to the cemetery. Mm-hmm. We're Catholic, and so were the Lonsacks. And um, she says, I remember that um, Taps was played mm-hmm. for one. And as it echoed away, the other one started playing taps for that soldier. Um, So more research. um, Something I found out just recently that uh, about the James V. Connolly, how many men really came home on that ship. And it was the first transport from Europe. so my quest for the Purple Heart um, went on for nine years with me writing mm-hmm. and writing and writing and the records are cinched. And I heard through the family grapevine that one of the cousins who was in charge of an uncle's estate had found the original Purple Heart certificate. Wow. I even tried to research if because I had never heard in the family or seen a Purple Heart. So it was my mission. Um, Had found the original. Mm -hmm. So I called him, and when he heard my voice, he said, you are not getting the original. (laughs) I said, I don't really think I need that. I just, would you send me two copies? And he said, yeah. I can do that. This original is mine. And I'm like, that's fine. So we know it was issued. Right. And I questioned my aunt, who's going to be 91 next month, sharp as a tack, and would be really mad if she knew I was doing this. (laughs) Uh, She would be. (laughs) So... Um, We're not going to tell her. Don't worry. I said, did they put the purple heart in the coffin with them? Mm -hmm. Because according to records, my uncle was buried in a mattress cover, which was not unusual. And if you were a nurse, which I am, you deployed with your mattress cover. Right. Because that's the only way to do it. Right. And she said, we don't know because we couldn't open the coffin. Well, I get that. 
you know, three years, not a lot left. Right. Um, so contacted the military who were checking it out and got the copy, mailed the copy and said, um, I want the purple heart (laughs) and I want my uncle's medals. Right. And it was more, you know, running around and because I had been involved in local politics here, I knew my representative in Congress very well. Right. And I called his office and told them this was a 10 year odyssey for me. And could he help? And some time went by and then I got a call from his office, like at six o'clock at night Mm -hmm. telling me it was a Thursday evening that um, medals were on their way to me, but my representative um, was holding the purple heart and it was a presidential set from president Obama okay. and that he would come to town on Saturday to present my mom with it. So quickly called the American Legion in town where I knew people and I'm like, can I borrow your meeting room? I'll pay you anything. Um, and they right. were like, no, no, you know, veteran. So quickly set up a little breakfast, called everybody in the family, which is no easy task. Right. And um, invited them all to come, told my mom. And um, we went that day and Rush Holt presented my mother with the Purple Heart. I have a picture of her holding it for the first time. In 80 years. So. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. I will send you the picture. I would love to see it. I would love to see it. Yeah. And my mom. And. um, Congressman Holt. uh, Yeah. I have some pictures. And the American Legion. The men there. Were also in World War II. Okay. And they came in full uniforms. And asked if they could have a picture with my mom and the congressman. And I'm like, go right ahead. I mean, you know. So I wanted to tell the story because I'm thinking not a lot of people know this story of how to, I don't know go in the back door of the government maybe right um but had it not been for that gentleman i would have never known right how to get it purple heart has a place of honor in my house and one of my cousins gave me a flag that his mom told him was on the casket mm-hmm um, I have some pictures of my uncle and that's kind of like my story, right? but maybe it will help somebody else to get the story of their relative. Like I now know because there are records was that 
most probably he was on a motorcycle and was shot in the neck and in the abdomen, mm. developed peritonitis and infection mm. and died. Um, that information was not available to me all those years ago. Right. right. Um, and the other thing is anybody searching, because this was also like shocking to me. I was, I had a significant other and he, he was really into World War II as well. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want to go up to MoMA, the Museum of Something Aviation. They do a two day show the beginning of June every year. Okay. And everything at the show has to be authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a medical tent, which I went into, and I honestly thought, and this is why my uncle died. He never had a chance. So antiquated from medicine today. And then um, I went and I talked to a TDBN, tank destroyer. I have no idea what the BN <laughs> stands for. And everything there was authentic, too. And, and that's when they told me, you know, that um, most probably he was on a motorcycle. And when he was shot and lived long enough to get to a field hospital. And that's kind of like my story. But the show in Reading is well uh, worth the trip if yeah, anybody like is searching yeah it sounds like it so now let's because i mean that that's an unbelievable story first of all so credit to you and to your family for even you know figuring out a way to to honor your uncle because you know all our servicemen and women you know deserve the honor you know whether it's immediate mm -hmm. or you know 60 80 years later but tell me a little bit about growing up like what do you what do you remember about your mom when you were young talking about your uncle and, and the brothers and sisters? Like, what, what was that like? Because it had to be, you said he was your mother's favorite. So, you know, there had to be stories that she would talk about Tony and that eventually led you to go on this quest to, to really complete his story. She said that um, when he knew he was being deployed or shipped out as she said right um she said he ran away from fort dix where he did his basic mm -hmm. came home and told them all goodbye and said to my mom i'm not coming back wow um and left and she said he didn't come back mm. um so I think he was one of the family that may have played an accordion that was big. We were Polish. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, and he, before he left, he brought my grandmother a beautiful seal coat. Mm. I have that coat. Wow. But, you know, when my grandma passed, um, I was just 18. Okay. And with a family so big, we, like, our Christmases were never 
a big family dinner because no one's house was big enough. Right. right. <laughs> so, um, um, what we did on Christmas was we house hopped mm-hmm. to the sisters, brothers. So, if you had been there for a while and somebody else showed up, it was your turn to hit the pike. <laughs> you got to make room. Place. Yeah, you got to make room. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I mean, there were just, you know, adults, 19 people with my grandmother, and wow. then yeah. 14 kids. Right. It's a lot of people. And Right. So some things I remember from growing up is my one aunt who was – an excellent seamstress and every year about mid-October everybody made the journey to Aunt Sophie's because it was time to pick Halloween costumes and everyone was handmade. Wow. And I guess I I do remember one year me wanting to be little uh, Bo Peep. Mm Mm-hmm. So bad. And, you know, because my aunt had made the bonnet with all the lace and the dress with a hula hoop in it. it uh, the whole thing. With the pantaloons, right? And it didn't fit me. Instead, I had to be the Turk while my cousin, Alan, had to be little boy Pete. So neither one of us <laughs> were happy that October. You know, and by the time it would have been my turn, I had outgrown little Bo Peep. So lots of fun. Um, I was an only child, but never, never lonely. Right, because you had cousins everywhere. Right, your cousins were all over the place. You know, if I complained to my mother that I was bored, she went down the list. Call Linda, call Eileen, call Alan, call Leslie. You know, see what everybody's doing. Go somewhere. Either that or we're cleaning the house today. Oh, baby, I'm out of here. Um, but yeah, growing up, I didn't really have a ton of friends because I had all these. You had the family. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think I just tried to count. And I think now we are at like 91 92 two aunts are still alive my mother's baby sister she'll be 91 next month and she's sharp as a tack and we have one of my other uncle's wives she was a korean war bride and um they met and married in england she's 93 Wow. And we've lost a few cousins. Um, and so that's our numbers, but that's our a, family's a big still family. growing. Yeah, it's a big family. <laughs> so now when you guys were, when you're young and your cousins are all running around, talk about your, your, I know you mentioned a little bit about earlier before the show about your grandfather, your grandmother. What were, you know, what was your relationship with them? And, and did they talk about your uncle? Was this something that kind of wasn't discussed? Tell me about that. I was six when my grandfather died. Okay. So I don't really have a memory of him. Okay. Um, 
being so young and I don't know how long he was sick, mm -hmm. but the grandkids weren't allowed in the room. Right. That was very common back then. Right. Um, so I would go with my mother, would sit with my grandmother, you know, meet up with the other sisters and brothers whose ever turn it was to take care of um, him. And my grandmother, I was very close to. I would, she, I traded being able to drive a car to school for sitting with my grandmother for two hours right. every day. Right. And I loved it. Yeah, I get it. You I know? mean, I, I was the same way with my grandmother. I, I remember, you know, as a, as a teenager, college student, you know, I, I, we lost her a few years ago. But I remember sitting in her kitchen thinking, one day I'm going to wish I could be right here right now. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had gotten my grandmother's recipes, which I didn't. A lot of, a lot uh, of us have that same wish because there's so many things where I, I think I kind of have it, but it's, it's not the same. It's not. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I remember my cousin Tony and my uncle coming over to make horseradish okay. like every Easter. Mm -hmm. And Tony, I'm trying to think, it, uh, he's probably four or five years older than me. And um, Tony wanting to do this, wanting to do this, wanting to do this. And he'd come in the house crying. <laughs> my grandmother would say, told you don't touch your face. Oh boy. But they made it. Um, Easter, always having the lamb cake, mm -hmm. the coconut on it, not a fan. Um, and, and we never did like an Easter dinner either because it was, how could you host? Right. You need a, you need a hall this. just to fit everybody. We did do one family reunion in 1996, and there were. One, two, three, three or four of us that worked on it. Mm -hmm. And we actually did a um, a keepsake book. Okay. Which we thought, we asked everybody for what, what do you remember about growing up? in the village. Yeah. That's basically. a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I guess some people didn't get what we were kind of asking for, mm -hmm. but, um, so I think pretty much everybody was there and we had enough books for the grandkids, the, the aunts and uncles and, um, even afterwards, we were getting requests, but it was like one shot deal. People wanting it for their kids or whatever. And right. so we did all the cooking ourselves. Wow. <laughs> and rented a hall. And um, my cousin, who's a graphic artist, took pictures and just blew them up and had them all over the walls. Oh, wow. Wonderful. And those of us that planned this were like, just like, what's going on? Nobody is talking. Like, 
this is really like a big failure on our parts. Hmm. And then people started coming to us and saying the, the pictures on the walls, they're mesmerizing and we're going back in time and right. reading the book and looking at all the pictures and this is great and we're like oh yeah you know you left them speechless and you know i think that was the last time that we were all together mm. and now it's like my cousin's kids have kids right. that are teenagers and you know even the youngest ones have kids that are in college or whatever so it's really hard to get together right um some other things i remember my aunt that's still alive she has a full basement i remember roller skating down there mm -hmm. somebody got skates for christmas there was a cheering section wow it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a simpler really time, was. too. A much simpler time, for sure. Yeah, and I think, like, we were so lucky growing up because we were never alone. Right. But, again, step out of line in this town, and I'd get home, and my mother would say to me, what were you doing on Willard Avenue? Because somebody saw you. Yep. Somebody saw you. Remember... Everybody sees what you do in this town. Don't right. I know it? Right. Um, why were you there? It was a beautiful day. Miguel and Nancy, friends, just decided to take the long way home. You know, we weren't doing anything. Right. But got reported. Well, it, they say it takes a village and you're part of the village. So that means there's eyes everywhere. Yeah, that book that we did, that, that was like our motto takes a village to raise a family and right. we are the village. Right. So now tell me this. So when you started your research, cause we, we got deep into it right off the bat about your uncle and the whole thing. Sorry. No, it's great. I mean, that's the story is unbelievable. But when you first started your research, were you, were you starting it just to find him or were you starting it to kind of go back as well? Or was it more centered around him? Well, you know, God, it's so long ago. What year was it? When did you start? 2000. Okay. All right. So you're, you're in this, like, you know, you're going on 24 years. Mm -hmm. 2000. And it took me 10 years okay. to accomplish. Um, but my cousin and I, we, we would just, you know, be on the phone and we would be looking. She's like, okay, today we're going to look for grandpa. Okay. Well, how many do you think Joseph Josephowitz is came into the country? I still haven't figured him out. Um, and I would, you know, so we'd search and okay, tomorrow. And I'm like, she's like, I'm just going to search for grandpa. I'm like, well, I'm going to search for uncle Tony. Okay. Okay. You know, we both worked. And so my research time could have been different from hers you know, whatever. Sure. But um, something inside me said, you have to do this. Like, 
for your mother. Right. So she must have been honored that you were taking this upon yourself to try to find more information about her brother. My mom, my mom, because of all the kids in the family, had to quit school after fifth grade. Mm. So, yes, I would show her the pictures. I would tell her what I was doing. And um, <clears throat> she cried. Yeah. When she held it. And I thought, I think this is one of the best things I've done in my life. Yeah. And absolutely. accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. So when you when you started, you know, your cousin, you said, was looking for the grandfather. You're looking for your Uncle Tony. What were some of the first things you remember finding? Well, I thought that my grandfather had come in through Ellis Island. Okay. And mm -hmm. the jury's still out on that. We can't figure it out. But then my cousin Patty said, I think I found him in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So which one are we going to go with? And um, the, his mom's name when he in the Philadelphia thing was Vic, Victoria Lishinsky. I have one match with Lishinsky. Mm -hmm. One. Right. I've contacted him. I was really excited because I thought I had two. Sure. George and Jersey. And he's like, Jersey is George and Polish. <laughs> like, crap. Back to one. I find <clears throat> Victoria Lashinsky in Detroit, Chicago okay. area. Okay. I remember as a child walking into my grandmother's house and my grandmother waiting for my mother to tell her he got another letter from Chicago. I remember it vividly. Wow. No idea. I find there are Josephowitzes out there. I match none of them mm -hmm. and they do not know my family. Hmm. So it's like a, a dead end road. Right. And you keep turning around, going back, hoping somebody put more road down. But I haven't been able to find any. And, and listen, it's one of those things, you know, if you've listened to any of the prior episodes of the podcast, I tell everybody, you're never done because there's always more work to be done. So, uh -huh. you know, I, I just said to somebody the other day, you know, this is this is one of those times a year, you know, get ready for the next couple of months because a lot of people get DNA tests for Christmas. They're taking them now as we speak and uh -huh. give it a couple months. You may have more matches. So, you know, it's one of those things you just you, you have to, you know, be be in it for the long haul. You're not going to get all the answers immediately. As you know. I know. And, yeah. And one of the things that I didn't know, because I called my friend, Miss Connecticut, who swears that we are related and um, we did not match DNA. And then she found out that the man she thought was her father, which would have been, I don't know, my mother's uncle okay, or cousin or whatever, was not her biological father mm -hmm. and actually found her real family, as she yeah. says, in South Jersey. Yeah. Um, Happens a lot. But I was looking for the Y match 
you know, and we are, we have 10, 10 granddaughters, but only four grandsons. Right. And one who, you know, the Y chromosome passes down from father to father. Right. He died. Mm. And there was only, there's only one left. And he graciously agreed against his wife's wishes to do his DNA. Mm -hmm. So I look at shared matches that we have, but I mean, there's so many of them. How do you decide? Yeah. <laughs> okay, spin the wheel, take number seven. I mean, I it, it, it's it's one of those things. And um, the last the last interview I just did with a woman named uh, Dana, she talked about a, a research method called the Leeds method, which is for so yes. if, you, if you look that up and you read about it and the techniques that that go into that kind of research, it is possible. It it takes work. I mean, it it, it is going to be a lot of tree building. It's going to be a lot of cross referencing different things, but it can be done. I mean, you're lucky to have a, a, a sample at all because sometimes there's no sampling that can happen, which can be very difficult. I so, know. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. That's, that's awful. But you know, it's, it's something that I hope, you know, through, through your test, you could at least eventually figure it out. I hope so too. I'm not as crazy about my grandfather. Mm-hmm as I am about my uncle. Right. You know, like every day around Memorial Day, it seems the military drops new records. Mm -hmm. And I will search on ancestry and um, my heritage. And I have found some stuff. Now, you said earlier your uncle had initially been buried overseas. Mm -hmm. and, and now he's here. Is he in New Jersey? Yes. Okay. He is buried in St. Mary's Cemetery in East Brunswick. Okay. My mom's twin, who also served in World War II, is buried there. And my other uncle, who served during Korea, is there. And my, my, um, my aunt tells the story about my grandmother had four sons serving and the uh, local funeral director was mayor of the town. Okay. And the fifth son got his draft notice. And she said, you know your grandmother. Well, my grandmother was kind of a little bit stout. And, you know, the fat Polish calves and the... <laughs> heavy black shoes mm -hmm. and a pocketbook. And she would say, she got that notice and huh, that pocketbook went on a shoulder and she marched right down to the mayor and said, you have four of my sons. You're not taking the fifth one. Mm. So he um, was not drafted. Um, got a full ride to uh, uh, University of Virginia. Okay. Uh, I'm not anyway in Richmond. Okay. And my aunt tells a story that the family was moving and his coach came and said, I came to drive you to Richmond. 
And he said, I can't go today. And he's like, why not? He's like, my family's moving. Mm. I can't just walk away. Right. And coaches say it's a full scholarship. No. So the coach said, how about tomorrow? So he said, tomorrow I'll be able to go. So off he went. And my mom tells the story. Him struggling and, um, you know, she had this piggy bank that she saved money in. And one day she knocked it over cleaning. And she said he was upstairs in a flash helping me pick up the money. Wow. Because <laughs> wow. they were, I mean, with 10 kids. Sure. My grandfather was the only one that worked. And as the kids got older, um, they had to work. Right. My mother went to work in a sewing factory. Right. And my aunts worked in sewing factories. And the boys were at war and they needed money. So Yeah. I mean that listen, that's the times. I mean, one of one of the inspirations for the name of this podcast, the everyone has a story part of it. My grandfather's sister mm-hmm. was the one who in her own way came up with that. She was here one day and she was walking around my house. We had just moved in and I was showing her all the different things on the wall. And she says, you know, everything here has a story. And, and that Mm kind of got that seed in my head of like, I need to do something with this. And the, the point of talking about this is she used to talk about her dad, which is my great grandfather and Mm -hmm. the same kind of situation, you know, who worked in the factory, who worked here, who did that. And the phrase she used, and it always stuck with me, is that nothing was beneath them because you you needed to work and you would take any job that you possibly could. It wasn't, you didn't care about title and salary and this, not, you cared mm-hmm. about putting food on the table. And in those days, I think you can agree, when there was no money, there was no money because right. you didn't have a credit card with a $50,000 credit limit on it. Limit. You right. had nothing. And until you worked and brought more money home, that was it. So it. Yeah. I remember going to my dad. Like I said, I was an only child when I was 18. And I was sharing a car with my mom. Mm -hmm. And I said to my father, you know, I kind of think that I should have my own car. And I remember him saying, I think you're right. And I remember thinking, right here, wrapped around my pinky, right? And the next words out of his mouth were, just as soon as you earn the money to buy your own car, we'll pay your insurance. I'm like, yeah, that's Mm not the way I was thinking of it. But, you know, they had a very strong work ethic. Mm Mm-hmm. And my father always told me, you can have anything you want if you're willing to work for it. Correct. And words I live by. When I graduated high school, I had six-month wait to go to nursing school. My mom got me a job in a dress in the blouse factory, buttoning blouses eight hours a day. Wow. <laughs> and this isn't for me. but And I had a part-time job. Mm-hmm. That turned, you know, yeah. part-time job, work in the factory till 4.30, yeah. go home, go to work for 5 to 9, come home. Right. Because I wanted that car. Um, and I've 
work two jobs a lot of times during my lifetime, yeah. you know? So, yeah. but you have the, the ability to, to truly say that you earned it, you know, you worked for it. It wasn't easy, but, and exactly. you know, that that's, that's advice from that generation that is, you know, I always say when you go back and you look, I don't think most people today could even survive what they survived. You know, the, the, the things they lived through. I mean, think about, you know, just your uncle alone, that story alone, you know, losing a son in the war, you know, it's, it's incredibly, their stories are, they're so resilient. There's just so much there that when you, when you look at how they lived, I mean, and I, I get it, you know, people came to this country to start a better life and in many mm -hmm. cases they did. But it also makes you wonder what was the life before that they were leaving? Like this, this life was difficult when you look back that they worked in factories and they worked three jobs and, and the whole thing. But that to them was a better life than where they had come from. So it yeah. just, it boggles, it boggles my mind what, you know, what they were leaving to come, to come to this country to do. For my grandmother, she had two brothers here. And so she came and went right to her two brothers. Mm -hmm. um, so met my grandfather and it's like in my searching, I looked at the, I think it's the 1920 census. They were already married. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is they lived right next door to the man who would become my father-in-law. Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Isn't but that, that weird? His name is on the census and them. And they had two kids. And and right down the street from her two brothers. Unbelievable. But it may, I mean it makes you wonder any small town. I mean I've I've seen it with my family where I see people from one side of the family living down the street from people on the other side of mm -hmm. the family. And it, it's funny, people go, gee, I wonder if they knew each other. Of course they knew each other. They lived down the street. Like, if nothing else, in passing, hey, how you doing kind of stuff. But of course you would have at some point seen them. So it's, it's crazy because my wife and I always tease. We have people that came from the same county in, in, in Ireland. And in, uh -huh. in one point, you know, the same town. And I said, I, I bet at some point our families knew each other. And it's just... It, you know, it's, it's, it's all, you could get into like this whole destiny thing, like, you know, what, whatever you want to call it. It's just, sometimes it's, you know, I feel like there's, there's more to it than we, we realize. I, I, I wish that, and you know, I don't have any children. I don't have any siblings, but I really wish like my parents had kept a diary mm -hmm. like here mm -hmm. in my house my grandfather was a barber and um i have a the barber chair yeah with the little seat that i remember he used to cut my bangs on for me um the cash register so mm -hmm. yeah I'm, i love antiques very cool but very cool yeah, my my father is a retired uh, hairstylist barber. So, you know, is I, I I I know that I know that world well. I grew up, you know, every time we went to work with my father, we went to the salon, and you know, still to this day, you know, I'm I'm in my 40s. He is the only person that's ever cut my hair. Still to this day, really? Yeah, so I still have the original straps on 
the barber chair mm-hmm. and somebody mm-hmm. my significant other he would say i'm going to sharpen your knives for you is it okay if i use your strop sure i mean yeah why not right right <laughs> but um yeah good stuff I, you're in your 40s i'll be 70 next month so crazy seven time time waits for nobody i know it's crazy i know but anyway all right joanne thank you so much for joining me i i appreciate your time and and you know enjoy enjoy your uh your research as time goes on i'm gonna keep plugging along usually in the winter i get re-involved perfect but i haven't as yet that's okay All right. Good stuff. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Take care. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks again for listening to today's show. As always, if you or someone you know has an interesting story or would like to talk about your research findings, please visit www.rootseveryonehasastory.com or email rootseveryonehasastory.com everyone has a story at gmail.com you can also follow the show on both facebook and instagram at roots everyone has a story and listen on both spotify and apple podcast this show and its music is written and produced by my dad mike scazzeri thanks again for listening